can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So if you have a a copy of the handout and you're thinking, he made a mistake, he put last week's verses on there, and you probably thought the same thing last week. This is, in fact, our third sermon on three verses. That's not bad, one sermon per verse. Um, And there's a reason for that. This... This passage of scripture that we find in Matthew 7 is in the context of the entire Sermon on the Mount. And Christ introduces this kingdom life and this kingdom calling. He calls us into it. And then we get to Matthew 7 and he places these warnings before us. And they're severe and they're extreme. And the end is catastrophic if, it's, if you do not know Christ. And he gives us the warning because he has a deep desire for... You, for me, for all those who have ears to hear, to listen and follow him. Um, he started off some of these warnings by talking about the broad gate and the narrow gate. And then he dealt with false prophets. And then he started dealing with our own self-deception. And two weeks ago, we looked at this in the context of what the warning is. And, and the ends to that, when he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, my, many mighty works? And he says, I, I never knew you. I don't know you. And he says, depart from me. And, and the, to, to be set, told by God to depart from God is the worst thing a human being can hear. And so we looked at that two weeks ago. And then last week, we looked at what some of the causes of this. I mean, fundamentally, we know it's a faith crisis. But we saw that play out in false doctrine. We saw it play out in our placing our faith in our works rather than in the work of Christ. We saw that playing out by just not knowing and then living in accordance with his word. You know, he says, those who do the will of my father, well, in order to do the will of the father, you have to know what the will is. And then, of course, we also saw that unless we test ourselves, we might be self-deceived as well. Um, And I, I thought maybe that's sufficient, but it wasn't sufficient because some of you are still asking, well, how do I know if I am one of the many? I mean, what indications, what signs, hence the title of the sermon, please do not think we're talking about signs and wonders, it's actual signs or indicators that you may be one of the many, that you may be one of those who comes before Christ on that day and he says to you, I don't know you, and you say, what do you mean you don't know me? (laughs) I've been a member of Camden Avenue Baptist for years, I was baptized, I read my Bible, what do you mean you don't know me? And he'll say, I've never known you, if indeed you do not know him. Um, And that means that we need to make a distinction between what we call in theology, but we know it's a said faith and a saving faith. A said faith is just something you say. Jesus, Lord, Lord, I believe in Christ. I believe in God. Versus a saving faith where you've placed all of your hope and all your trust in the Savior, in his ability to save you through his broken body and through his spilled blood. And so this morning, I want to look at Signs or indicators that maybe, and I I want to say this now and I will say it again at the end, these are indicators that you might not know him. It doesn't mean that if you go, oh, I fall into this category, that you don't know him. And I'm certainly not saying to you, you don't know him. But there are indicators and signs that we've seen throughout the centuries that that might reveal something that that, uh, shows us something on the inside, a darkness and possibly a lostness. Um, they're spiritual indicators that something's wrong. There's something off. Now, they may be indicators that, you know, you do know Christ. You know him as Lord and Savior, but you are, you're, you're sinning and you've moved away from him. In which case, identify that, turn, repent, and realign yourself with Christ again. That may be one possibility as you go, we go through some of these. The other, in the context of this passage is that you don't know him at all, and that you haven't known him, and you have never known him, regardless of your baptism and your church attendance and your Bible reading, that you just don't know him as your Savior. And this is the context in which I'd like to look at these 
these particular external signs. Because it's not enough just to say, Lord, Lord. We saw that in the passage. They said, Lord, Lord, and they did not know him. We must know him for who he is as Lord and Savior, as the King, as the Messiah, as the lover and redeemer of your soul. You must know him through the gospel of grace. You must know him through the cross, the sacrifice that he made to save a wretch like you and me. You must know him and his power through the Holy Spirit to live as he's called us to live. We must know him, really know him. And there's blessed assurance in that. If someone says, do you know Christ? I know Christ. And you can tell them, not just by saying it with your lips, but this is who you are. That he has made you and changed you. And this is your life in him. To know him. And that's what we want. At the end of this sermon and at the end of this series, as we finish up in the next couple of weeks, that we can say with blessed assurance that Jesus is mine and that I am his. So... I praise God that you're here if you've been here the last two weeks. Brutal teaching. And it's been hard for me. This is not easy stuff to teach. I mean, it's brutal at times thinking, they're going to hate this. They're going to hate me because they hate this. So, I pray that you come wanting to hear Christ. And not me, but Christ. So, this last warning is to the self-deceived. And that means, as we looked at last week, if you're self-deceived, you'll hear this and go, yeah, that's not me, right? Don't write yourself out of this warning. It's to those who are unconsciously moving through this process, which won't end in life but destruction. Hear with all your ears this morning. These are signs. External indicators that something on the inside's not right. For some, some of you know, I have, I have a disorder called eosinophilic esophagitis. Isn't that nice? You, it's called EE, easier to say. And essentially, the eosinophils in my body attack my esophagus and are destroying it. And they have been for years. And so the outward sign, one of the outward signs is that you have trouble swallowing, just swallowing food. When I was younger, they didn't even know about this, let alone, I mean, there wasn't a diagnosis. My parents used to always say, chew your food, chew your food. And so I'd chew my food and I'd chew my food. Everything was like mush and I'd swallow it and I'd still have trouble swallowing. The problem wasn't me chewing my food and the problem wasn't swallowing. There was something on the inside that we now know was wrong, okay? The signs and indicators that we go through today... They're not the problem in and of themselves. They may be sin issues that you need to deal with before Christ. But the question we want to evaluate ourselves in this morning is, does this sign reveal something inside that's tragically off base that may reveal something I don't want to admit? And that might be that I don't know Christ, which means I repent and I turn to him this morning. So let's begin. This was hard because there are, you know, you start thinking about all the indicators that might reveal that you don't know Christ. There are way more than I have here. I have, I have seven in two different categories. The good that's gone bad and the bad that's gone worse. Um, and so you can add to this list. It's by no means comprehensive. And once again, it by no means means that you don't know Christ. Okay? So we're going to test ourselves right now. Are you ready? You got your seatbelt on? Am I you ready? I'm not thinking of any particular person in these signs. So don't say, oh, he's talking. I'm not. Okay, there wasn't anybody. Oh, I'm, they're not. I'm talking about indicators that apply to us all. Certainly every single one of these I have struggled with at some time in my life in Christ. So if you want to say he's talking about himself, that's good. That works. So I'm not pointing at you going, oh, yeah, that's you. Let's look at the good that's gone bad. The first list of signs, the four that I identified scripturally, are those things that we have to be ultra-cautious with. Because they're the things that God calls us to, and the things the Scriptures command us to do and to be, that we then make ultimate, or inordinate, or greater than they should be. And this is, when I was contemplating these areas where we've really struggled as a church, not only in Camden, but as a contemporary American church, this is where Satan and his dominions have done their greatest work. Getting in. I mean, Satan disguised himself as an angel of light, right? And so making your way into the, the church itself and then getting people off track by the very thing God calls us to do and be. And so these are some that we will look at. First, I want to talk about the distraction of ministry. 
ministry that goes bad. Not bad ministry, but ministry that takes a place that it ought not in God's economy. They came to Christ. Notice their declaration. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We made many mighty works in your name. They entered the presence of God and expected to enter heaven based upon their ministry. And they were saying, not only did we do ministry, but it was great ministry. It was supernatural ministry. We belong here in your kingdom. In other words, they put greater importance on their work and their ministry than they did on the Savior and their relationship to him. Do you remember when the disciples came back from their first missionary outing? Do you remember they came back? Luke chapter 10 gives it to us. The 72 returned with joy. They said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus doesn't say, that's fantastic. Who knew? He doesn't say that, right? What does he say? He replied, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Do not rejoice that you can cast out demons. Do not rejoice that you do many mighty works. Do not rejoice that you prophesied. What does he say? He said, instead, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What does that mean? Rejoice in the fact that you know me as Lord and Savior. Rejoice in the fact that my Father took his righteousness and he gave it to you freely through grace. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're all excited about all the wrong things. And you're not excited about the right things. Their joy, their excitement, their passion was in their ministry and not the one they were supposed to be doing the ministry for. We see this. I've seen this with members in this church when the ministry dries up or that person is no longer capable of doing the ministry, say physical illness or time limitations, and suddenly that person changes from being excited and filled with joy and energy to despondent, discouraged, depressed, and almost catatonic. And what's happened? Well, you've taken away their joy. It wasn't Christ. It was the ministry itself. So subtle. Because you think, what a great ministry, what a great work, what a great person. We, you know, we see this in the secular sense. When people have committed their life to work, and work is their number one, their ultimate, and then they retire, and what happens? I mean, what do we see a lot? It's tragic. People die. They retire, and six months later, they're dead, and you're like, what happened? They stopped working. You say, well, keep working. That's not the answer. They've placed their hope... Their rest, ironically, in their work. And then when they stop working, there is no rest. And so what a lot of people do is they go, they go back to work. And you know, I know some of the people that we see that are out there, you know, if you, you go into Walmart and you see, you know, uh, a beautiful 90-year-old man greeting, some of them, they're strapped for cash. But others, they cannot not work. Why? There's restlessness in the soul. If Christ is not the one you're resting in, then you will be in a perpetual state of motion, perpetual ministry, perpetual work. And in the end, you'll declare that before him. And he said, that's not it. You've missed it all along. It's about me. It's about our relationship. Now, some of you, I know this strikes a chord with because you're busy beavers. I mean, it's crush along, crush along. I'm not telling you to stop working. I'm saying evaluate your work in light of the Savior. Is he... You're number one. I mean, is he your everything? Or have you commingled that with your works and maybe the works have superseded it? You can get so busy doing many mighty works that you neglect your own soul to the degree of ultimate destruction. Distraction number two, community. You're like, unbelievable, Pastor Booth, you talk about community as a distraction. All you do is talk about community, 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 community. There's dangers in all of these, right? All of these good things given to us by God. There's great danger if we take those great things and we supersede Christ with them. You were created. I was created by a communal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to be communal people, to live in community. I mean, it's the only explanation that Facebook can have any credence in our culture. I mean, no, seriously, we're so desperate for community that we even want it in a virtual state, right? I want community at work. I want community. I want it when I can't have it with all these people that are all my friends, right? Or not so much my friends. Whenever community, socialization, alignment with a group 
supersedes the community that Christ calls us into, and that is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whenever that happens, you are in great danger of hearing him say, I never knew you. I know you said you knew me, but your community is not my Father and the Holy Spirit. It's that. It's another. Now, how subtle is this? In the church, it makes its way into denominational affiliations, right? We're a Southern Baptist church. There have been people who have come here because this is a Southern Baptist church and they won't go into any other church than a Southern Baptist church. Strange dialogue with a man some time ago, years ago actually, who visited and we got talking after the service and I said, you know, why are you here? I'm a Southern Baptist. And I said, well, do you attend a Southern Baptist church? He said, I would go to no other. And I'm like, hmm, interesting. So I poked him a little bit and I said, so what does that mean? He goes, I was born a Southern Baptist. I'll die a Southern Baptist and that's the way it is. And I went, what if... The Southern, what if the Southern Baptist Convention got heretical on you? I mean, what if they started just teaching blasphemy? What would you do? He said, I was born a Southern Baptist. I will die a Southern Baptist. And I thought, Jesus is right. Right? He will die a Southern Baptist. He will die and not live. If you place anything, any denominational affiliation, any association, any community above Christ, that leads to death. I mean, I... How many, how many parents have sent their children to Christian schools thinking somehow that brings them, parents, saving grace? I mean, they're paying an awful lot of money. It's got to be worth something. It's got to be bringing them some credit in the eternal sense. And worse yet for the children who have never known anything other than Christian schools, where Christian teachers tell them they're Christians, even though they have no idea whether or not they're saved, and the child grows up thinking they're saved, and they're not. Not uncommon when a teacher has an entire class of young people praying as though they know the living God. That can be misleading. I mean, you can graduate and go through your whole life thinking, well, I was saved. How do you know? I went to a Christian school. I've met professing believers who spend their waking moments committed to large communal events. The National Day of Prayer. You know, the, the, and don't take this the wrong way, but the inordinate number of conferences, the number of Christian conferences that are, why they overlap on Sunday, I do not know, but it's an amazing thing to me. And people will pour their life into these other things, these, the parachurch ministries and conferences and all these things thinking somehow this makes me good. This is going to get me in that right standing. In the last few decades, we've seen another interesting phenomenon. Signs, remember, you're thinking signs, external indicators, of the number of people flocking to famous churches with famous pastors. That's an interesting phenomenon. And I'm not critiquing those pastors or even their churches. But I, I, I don't know what it means when a believer goes to a particular church because the, the pastor's famous. Or even worse, when they go to a satellite church that has no real person preaching or teaching, but a big screen TV that projects the pastor from miles away. I mean, are we to believe that, that in a satellite church there's not one man in that church who can't get up and proclaim the gospel of grace? That's a grievous thing, if it's true. We were created as social beings in community, to be in community with God. But any time that community supersedes the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it may be an indicator that you don't know the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Maybe. Another distraction, and I'm going to have to keep moving here. I have on my notes, stay on your notes. Because each of these points, I mean, it's ridiculous. I could think I could talk an hour, which you would hate, on each one. Number three, the distraction of country. The distraction of country. What are you talking about? You've heard the phrase, especially in our culture, God and country. God and country. And if you're in the military, God, country. 73 to 78% of people still identify themselves in this country as Christians. That, by the way, would be the many. We oftentimes convolute our identity as a believer in Christ with our identity as an American I don't know how many dialogues that I listen to now and dialogues like public schools and prayers, taking God's name out of the Pledge of Allegiance, why we need to reform Washington, D.C. because we're a Christian nation and we need to get back to our roots. Now, before you get your feathers all up or you get in a dander, I'm not arguing for or against any of those things. 
There's a right place for that dialogue. But what grieves me is the danger of making any of those God and country issues more than Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace and the flames of hell. I'm bombarded every week. And I use that term literally bombarded by mailers, phone calls, trying to get me to align myself and take a position on a Republican platform, a Democratic platform, a tax platform, abortion, homosexual. I mean, you can name it. And they're all these politically driven things. I received two phone calls. You want to to know how important I am? You want to know that, don't you? Dr. Lutzer called me and Dr. Uh, Dobson called me personally. Now, it was a recording, so it went out to a lot of pastors. But it said pastor, and I'm the pastor, so they kept calling me. Erwin Lutzer called me. Why did he call me? Want to know if we want to have lunch? No, not at all. He and Dr. Dobson were encouraging me to encourage you to vote in a particular way. Now, once again, I'm not saying that any of that's necessarily wrong. But when the primary dialogue of the body of Christ becomes political, becomes issue-driven, and not the Savior, and the need for a Savior, and the gospel itself, and the danger of hell, when that supersedes them, we're in great danger. Because we then take on a movement, and we take on a, a fashion and a look that's not of Christ. It's not of Christ at all. Now you don't think I'm all that important, do you? All right, number four, the distraction of the intellect. Distraction of the intellect. So we have the ministry, community, country, and intellect. Notice that none are bad. But the potential for superseding Christ is there. Uh, This wanting to know. We talked last week about one of the causes of of being misled. It's It's not knowing what God's will is. It's not having sound doctrine. It's being moved and manipulated by myths rather than by truth. And so you're saying, well, you told us last week that we're to know these things. We are. But when your pursuit of this knowledge isn't for that love relationship you have with God through Christ, when the pursuit of knowledge is just for knowledge, it's just so you can have it and, and win arguments. When you read the Bible purely as a source of knowledge, or worse yet, to build your arsenal, to engage in apologetic dialogue, to win arguments... That's a dangerous thing, and it's a dangerous sign. The captivation with the Bible as a textbook, rather than letters by God, the Creator, written to those He redeems. Love letters written to those He loves. And this deception is difficult to spot because it's highly orthodox. I mean, these people know their Bible, inside and out. Which is not a bad thing. The problem isn't orthodoxy. The problem is when it takes on a life of its own. There were several examples that came to mind, but in, in contemporary church dialogue, there's so much discussion on eschatology, end times, what it's going to look like. You know, you got Daniel and Revelation, always just, people talk about it a lot. And in light of some of the statistics I gave you last week, that's fascinating because we are, we are wholly ignorant when it comes to the basic principles of the Bible. And yet we're fascinated with end times. Which I I get, right? We're a sensational people. Eschatology is sensational in nature. So why why not gravitate toward it? The problem is this. It takes on... You should study eschatology. Study Revelation and Ezekiel and Daniel. Wisely. But when your... Your shape of Christian life and your identifying people, believer, non-believer, goes like this. That person's a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, dispensational, non-dispensational, preterist, partial preterist, futurist, amillennial, millennial, I'm not really sure. When everybody's squeezed in one of those categories, what have you done? You've taken a, a biblical teaching, you've elevated it, and now it's captivated you other than Christ. When you take your eyes off Christ, the word of God becomes something that we use as a sword to decimate people rather than to reveal the kingdom. I used to have a student, I had several, but they loved apologetics. Apologia, the Latin word means to answer back, right? As a believer, to answer back for the hope that you have in Christ. To be able to answer someone's question. They loved it. And and they would love to win the argument 
with a non-believer or with uh, um, you know, someone from another faith or someone within the church. Um, and there was one particular individual who would come up to me and he loved, he was very bright. He, would come, he came here for a while and he would listen to my sermons. And afterwards, he would always talk about my sermons about the particular points in structure. Uh, and it was always about, oh, that was good. I can use that as a weapon. Or I can, I can systematize that in such a way that it will fit this argument perfectly so I'll be able to, to attack that group. And it's grievous when someone is constantly approaching the word of God or hearing a teaching or a sermon and it's this, how can I gather information to beat you and you and you? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this writes, when a man comes to me at the close of a service and talks about preaching as an expert, I know I have failed completely as far as he is concerned. He says, the effect of true preaching should be to make us fear and tremble. It should make us examine ourselves and think more about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, beware of becoming interested in the mere letter of the word of God. It is something that can happen very easily. Especially in highly orthodox communities. It's the word. It's the Bible. It's what God said. That, be, that replaces Christ. Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, great warning. He said, turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. They've wandered from the faith. So these are, these are Christian ways, ministry, community, country, intellect, that if we do not wisely evaluate ourselves in light of Christ and the gospel, they may be indicators, they may be signs that we don't know Christ at all. And you can see that each of those, maybe all of them, could captivate you for your whole life. I mean, you may, be, you may pour yourself into a ministry or, or find tons of community in the church itself. And you may be someone who is, you know, proud to be an American and it's God and country all the time. And maybe you just feed off the knowledge of the word of God the whole time, never knowing Christ. You say, is that possible? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. It is not only possible, it's real and it's going to be the condition for many. For many. Point number two, the bad gone worse. In the first group, we saw signs, identifiers within the church. Blessings and callings that can be taken in such a latitude that we miss the Savior. In this second group, I was thinking in more general terms of just the contemporary church. I was thinking of my last ten years here at Camden. And what I've heard most. And what I've struggled with most. And these are they. Um, indicators that we might not know Christ. First one. Perpetual distractions. Perpetual distractions. And this is the first one because it's the one that I have experienced the most in my own life and it's the one I've experienced the most in ministering to others. Those who came before Christ called him Lord, Lord. But they were distracted. They were distracted by their prophesying. They were distracted by casting out demons. They were distracted by their many mighty works. They were distracted people. Fundamentally so. This particular sign of perpetual distractions is difficult because of our own self-deception. This requires, I think, much help. Other people saying, you're distracted. You're distracted. Busyness. Not having enough time. I mean, I, I can give you them, but you know them all too well. Multiple distractions in my life. I, I don't have the time to read my Bible. I don't have the time to pray. I don't have the time to go to church. I don't have the time. I'd love to. I'd love to. I really would. I'd love to be transformed in the image of Christ. But all the things that the Bible tells me I should do to be changed, I'm, I don't have time for it. So how do I get through this point without taking several hours? I'm going to give you the top ten that I have heard in my ministry. You ready? You can just write them down or memorize them. Top 10 perpetual distractions that keep people pursuing Christ through prayer, Bible, community, church, and service. Ready? The number one, it is in our call, it's work. It's work. I hear that the most. Too long, too hard, too much, too important. Like the money. Work. Test yourself. Number two, sleep. Sleep. The battle of the blanket. You got work 
And you have slothfulness. Fascinating. Those to the top two. Well, I, I want to get up early and, and pray, but I'm tired. I, do, I really want to come to the 930 Bible study, Pastor. I've heard it's fantastic. But I'm tired. I want to come to church on time, but I'm tired. And it's this battle of the blanket. So you're lying there and you're thinking, I know, I know, I know. But there's a greater desire. It doesn't mean that you don't desire to pray. You do. But the greater desire is to sleep. Number three. Succumbing to the pressures of an unfaithful spouse. Right? If we're unequally yoked, the sin begins. And the danger is that the faithful spouse will be misled and pulled away from God, his word, prayer, community, service, and ministry by the unfaithful spouse. And I see that a lot too, and have. Number four, being a slave to your child. Being a slave to your child. What do I mean? That means instead of God blessing you with his child that he brings into your life for you to raise and train in the ways of the faith to become a member of your family, that child becomes the head of the family. And that child determines when you will eat and when you will sleep and what you will do. Go to church or not go to church. Go to sporting events. Do these things. School life. The child runs it. Number five. Grandchildren. Remember, I'm not talking to anybody. Being a slave to our grandchildren. That may take the form of grandparents actually becoming parents and allowing their children to live ungodly lives and not raise their children. It may also take the shape of the grandparents making their grandchildren idols and submitting to their idols and they're forsaking lots of things. And it may be even the gathering of the saints for events, for idle events. And you'll be pulled. If Christ isn't your king, then you'll be pulled. Number six, sports. I don't know if I have to say anything more on this. But I will. One of our neighbors. He has season tickets to the Raiders and the Niners. And so he says, I, I, there's a conflict of time. Yeah, I get that. Football, Sunday. Church, Sunday. I get that. But that's his excuse. I have season tickets. I mean, it's bad enough. They're saying, we prophesied in your name and did many mighty works. Really? I had season tickets, Lord, to the Niners and the Raiders? Number seven. Parachurch ministries. Replacing church community, church service, church ministry with a parachurch ministry. Number eight. Video games. I'm just telling you what I've seen. When the Entertainment Software Association found that the average age of serious gamers is 37 years. Oh, yeah. With 29% of those serious gamers being over the age of 50. We got issues. I mean, we got issues. Number nine. Vacation and leisure time. There are other things I'd rather do. I'm not distracted. I'm making a conscious, willful choice to forsake prayer, forsake my Bible, forsake the community because there are lots of things I want to do and there's lots of things to do, especially in our culture. Lots of play. I'm going to play. And lastly, which everybody will identify with, it's just daily life. You say, it's just life. It's laundry. It's lawns. It's grocery shopping. It's cooking. It's dishes. It's kids. It's bills. It's life. I want to pray. I don't have time to pray. I want to read my Bible. I don't have time to read my Bible. Life's hard. And I'm not saying it's not, especially in the culture in which we live. But the very thing that God has given you to sustain your soul, which is his son and the Holy Spirit, and the very food that he's given you, which is his word to live upon daily, we don't eat. And so we starve to death. We pine away. People have said to me, I work Monday through Friday. Pastor. Because I don't. I, I play on Saturday, and I have to catch up on Sunday. And that's cultural. I work Monday through Friday. I play on Saturday. When else am I going to? When else am I going to do all these things? I can't. I can't do my laundry and clean my house and shop on. You know, so I got to do it on Sunday. So I, I can't go to church. It's not my fault. It's the culture's fault, and God will understand. James four four. Ready? 
you adulterous people, God said. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Those who will hear Christ say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Now, there are times and seasons that some of these things, they make their way in. But if this is a perpetual state for you, and, that's, and I was careful to put perpetual distractions. There are things that come in that distract us. And we ought not be what we do. So we turn from them. But if it's a perpetual state, if everything is always wrong, if you never have time because things are always off for your entire life, that's a huge indicator that something is wrong and it's not the things. It's not everything. It's not your boss or your kids. or your, it's, it's you. It's you. If everything's always wrong, then it's not everything. It's, it's you. And it might be that you don't know Christ. It might be that you don't know him as your Lord and Savior. We had a young lady here a few years back, um, faithful, faithfully attended church. She was in a small group. She was engaged in ministry. Um, when she was in college, she was one of those young ladies that other young ladies looked up to and thought this. She, she had all the external signs that would indicate a transformation of heart. She graduated and she got a job at a high-tech company in Silicon Valley. And it wasn't long that, that she stuck down from the ministry. That's usually the first thing that goes. Whatever ministry you're doing, you need time. And so you step down from the ministry. And then she stepped out of her small group. And then she started missing Sundays. Periodically at first, and then more and more, and then poof, she's gone. And so after multiple points of trying to intercede, I finally went to her work. And I found her, and I tied her up. No. And I said, listen, what is going on? Where have you been? I said, I haven't seen you in a couple months. And she said to me, and it was one of those, like, she goes, what do you mean? I've, I've only missed a few weeks. She was being sincere. That slow fade had led her to such a point of self-deception that she had, I mean, the, from where she had been to where she was, in her mind, it wasn't that far at all. And yet, the whole church saw this young lady dissipate and disappear. And as far as I know, she's still self-deceived. So, perpetual distractions. Two, the sign of seeking anonymity. Keeping yourself from being known by believers. Um, sin is so twisted... We think we can say we know Christ even though we don't know his body on earth. The church. We think that somehow we can say, oh, I know Jesus, I know his way, and I don't know any of the people. I don't have real relationships with any of the people. And, and we, we believe that, that simply coming here for an allotted period of time on Sunday is sufficient to know the body of Christ. We deceive ourselves, and we have no real contact with the body. I mean, no real relationships with people that have been saved by grace and brought to a particular place to commune together as the family of God. No meals together, no Bible study together, no prayer together, no ministry together, no outreach, no service, no life, just Sunday morning. And it's, I don't know how that's any different than, than the Super Bowl, than the Niners or the Raiders tickets. It's Sunday morning, and so we show up. But no community, anonymity instead, and hiding. And, and what happens is when people come in and, and they want to remain anonymous, when people get too close or the teaching gets too difficult, they, they leave because... We're a market economy. The church is a market structure now. In our, and see, um, there are lots of churches. I don't need to come to this church right here. I'll go down the street. Or what we do is we go to the big church. Because in the big church, you're anonymous unless you make yourself not anonymous. Right? Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. The author said, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. The exact population we're talking about. Those who remove themselves and don't know Christ. How do we do that? The verse 13 in Hebrews 3. By encouraging one another daily. By encouraging one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That means to encourage within biblical community 
on more than once a week basis. In fact, I would argue that when we do this, when we pray and sing and I proclaim, there's not a lot of you know, encouragement going one another. You know, Jan's not going, hey, Bill, hang in there, buddy. You know, it'd be, it'd be kind of weird, first of all. But this is not the context for it. So that means outside of Sunday mornings, there's contact and community and meals and prayer and Bible study and encouragement and rebuking. All together. One longtime visitor left Camden because he said, this place is too intimate And he said, and I'll quote, I need a place where I can blend in and live my own life. Let me translate that for you. I need a place where I can hide so that I'm held accountable to no one and still claim my self-saving title that I'm a Christian. No accountability, no encouragement, not being known by others. The result may be not being known by Christ. Might be. Third sign, barren tree. Ready? Remember a few weeks ago when Brother Todd brought the message from Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 through 20? Actually, he did 15 through 20. I'll give you just a piece of it. Every tree, every good tree bears good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you'll know them by their fruit. That's simple. When you take a Galatians chapter 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, you say love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That ain't me. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you evaluate yourself in it, when you read the Ten Commandments or, or, or 1 John, is there fruit in your life? I mean... Christ said you'll bear much fruit. Do you see it at all? And Growth is slow. I know that. And this process of sanctification takes your entire life. That's why it's the whole life. But if if it's a good tree, there'll be fruit. Some little, some not so little, but there'll be fruit. It can't be a tree with no fruit of any kind. So you can't see, say, I'm a barren tree with no good fruit in light of Galatians 5 and Matthew 5 through 7 and 1 John and the Ten Commandments, but I know Jesus. You can't make the statement. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve, and you do likewise. So ask yourself, I mean, do you have a servant's heart? I know that's a cliche within the Christian, but do you want to serve people? When it hurts, when it's hard, when you're tired, is there a desire to serve others beside yourself? Before being saved, whenever we serve someone, it's just to bring ourselves glory. But when in Christ, you have the ability in the Holy Spirit to serve out of your love for God and your love for one another, to really serve. Why? Because you love them. Fundamentally. So ask yourself, when's the last time that you served from that gospel disposition? I mean, so much of our day is just serving us, right? From the moment we get up to the moment... How much of your day is considered considering others and serving others? Actually engaging other people? Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Do you love His children. Do you love one another? I'm not just, do you say it? Oh, hello, brother. How are you? I love you. I love you too. You know, in these terrible uh, music shows that are on TV that I talked about a couple weeks ago, they always say, I love my fans. What do they mean? They mean they love the fact that they're giving them all this glory and honor. Christ is saying, do you love one another sacrificially? I mean, do you really care about someone's soul and their physical well-being and their mind and their emotional state? Do you care? Do you love them as Christ loves us? Because that's the standard. And Christ loved us infinitely to the point he went to the cross. Do you love one another? That's a yes or no. I don't know. If you don't know, you probably don't. You don't have to ask me, do I love my wife? I'm like, yes. Do I love my children? Yes. Do I love you? Yes. I love you. Do you love one another? 
This came up in the Bible study this morning. Do you forsake the Lord's Day on a regular basis? Sunday is the Lord's Day. The Bible prescribes it. Do you forsake it on a regular basis? Worshiping corporately only when it fits your schedule. I mean, you come when there's nothing else. So I guess I'll go to church. You squeeze it in. Or do you come here on the Lord's Day bringing your first fruits? You're well-rested. You're of sober mind and you're hungry and you're thirsty and you want to be fed and you want to be changed on the Lord's day. Do you battle the blanket on Sunday morning and lose? This is a hard question. Are you listening? Do you battle the blanket on Sunday morning and lose? But when you battle it Monday through Friday for your employer, you win. There's something wrong. If you can get out of bed and be to work on time five days a week, Monday through Friday, and you can't win the blanket on Sunday morning, there's something wrong. Has your son's travel baseball team or your daughter's soccer team caused you to not worship Christ on Sunday? There are people that I love so passionately who have surrendered soccer, made soccer... More than Christ. I, I, we would love to, to be at church, but there's a tournament. So destroy the tournament. Do you lack the desire and motivation just to know Christ intimately? And just to know Him. To really know Him. To hear Him. To follow Him. Great prayer by Richard, the Bishop of, of Chichester in 1253. He said, O merciful Redeemer, friend and brother, may I know thee, many of you know this from the, from the hymn, may I know thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, and follow thee more nearly day by day. Is that your desire? I mean, fundamentally, does that lead you to prayer? And fundamentally, does that lead you to his word and lead you into church and lead you into Bible? Does it lead you to these places of service? Does it? You say, why are you here? Because I want to know him more dearly. I want to hear him and follow him more clearly. If when you, or better yet, others examine your fruit, find little or no fruit, it may be an indicator that you don't know Christ. Number four, do you persistently subvert God's order or agree with those who do? Proverbs fourteen twelve. there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Our culture has so twisted God's ordained, planned, created order for family, for church, and for society. He's turned it upside down. Have you turned it upside down and are you okay with it? It might be an indication you don't know him. Just recently, in the last few weeks, we had a young man on this campus for about three weeks. He walked through those doors and he left three weeks later through those doors with a book by Joyce Myers in his hand. You say, who's Joyce Myers? She's a false prophet. Joyce Myers, before she started her very well-known life in the world, misleading ministry as a false prophetess, she got her start. Do you know how she got her start? She got her start in a charismatic church in Fenton, Missouri, Life Christian Center, as an associate pastor. So what's, what's the big deal? There's a problem with females in the pastorate. She gained her popularity when she became a pastor and started preaching and teaching. This young man was the product of men in that church, in that city, not following the word of God. And saying to her, lovingly, you cannot be a pastor. She'd say, why? Say, 1 Timothy chapter 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man. Why? For Adam was deceived first and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived. And you say, that sounds harsh. It sounds like it's against women. It sounds countercultural. That's what the Bible teaches. And this young man, years later, wrapped up into decisions made by men who would not follow the Bible. They subverted God's order. And the ramifications are such. In our homes, 
We find men, husbands and fathers, not submitting plainly to the teachings of Ephesians 5 and 6. Ephesians 5 and 6 is not difficult to understand. Where husbands are commanded to be the loving head of their wife and house. The head. And fathers are commanded to raise their children to love and serve the Lord. Many professing men have surrendered their headship to their wives and radically perverted the DNA of the family designed by God from the very beginning. And ladies, many professing women have assumed that role with great joy and glee, much to the same shame of God, their husbands, and their children. Many fathers have surrendered their personal God-given responsibility to shepherd their children, and they put them off into groups, programs, the church, their wives, worse, the public schools. I've seen families where husbands submit to their wives and where the children, for all intents and purposes, make all the decisions. And it's grievous. Not God's ordained plan. If you've forsaken God's fundamental structure of life in the church, in your life, at work, in your, in your home, it may be an indicator that you don't know Christ. Last problem, and then I will, I will go to the healing. Are you still with me? Are you examining your heart? I pray so. This last one's not a might. If this one applies to you, you don't know Christ. I only can say that because the Bible says that. The problem of habitual sin. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, listen very closely, saints. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. If you deliberately, willfully, and intentionally after professing Christ as Lord and Savior, continue in a life of sin. Say, I'm going that direction. I know better. The Bible testifies. The church testifies. But I'm not going to submit. This passage says that you have the knowledge about the truth, but you do not know Him, Jesus Christ. And that means there's no blood. There's no covering for your sins. What's left is the fearful expectation of judgment and hell, and this is a most sobering teaching. Because the deliberate, habitual, ongoing sin is one of the clearest signs that you do not know Christ if you continue in that vein. Why? Christ will say to you, Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, because lawlessness still reigns in your life. You haven't, it hasn't been slain by Christ. You haven't died to it. It doesn't mean. Read 1 John. It doesn't mean that if you still sin and you confess that you're not saved. It means that there's deliberate, willful, intentional sin that you're headlong into. If that's your life, then it still has power over you. There are so many other signs that I know that maybe have come to mind in light of this dialogue. I pray so. But these are some of the major indicators. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.15... You may be saved, but only as one escaping the flames. That's not good. But these signs may indicate a much worse sickness, a much greater internal disease, and that is one of not knowing Christ at all. I mean, it's one thing to know him and, 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 and be off track and repent and come back, but it's another thing entirely not to know him and to have him say to you, I do not know you. We're called in commandment to make our calling election sure. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. To test ourselves to see what we're in the faith. The Bible says, do these things. Now, what do you do if you say, all right, pastor, I, I've just been listening to these seven. And I've got another seven I can add to it. I don't think I know. I mean, what if you're, what if you're going to be brutally honest with yourself, ultra sober this morning. And your conclusion is, Christ is not your Lord and Savior. What do you do? First of all, you praise God that you recognize it, if that's where you are, because that's He's revealing that to you. 
But there's something to do. If you evaluate yourselves in light of these signs or others and come to that understanding that you don't know Christ, that you really don't know Him, that you've, you've professed His name, you've done the church thing, but you don't know Him as your everything, then Christ calls you this morning to come and to be healed. To be healed. What do I mean? A few chapters later, in Matthew chapter 13, listen, I don't want you... I don't want you despondent to these. I can see some of your faces like, uh, no, 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 no. This is a message of hope. These were signs to diagnose a potential internal illness. So how do we cure the problem? Yeah, there you go. All right. Matthew 13. Jesus in his ministry, he is gaining so much popularity by his teaching and his healings that people are flocking to him. And in the early part of 13, they get to that point where There's so many people around him that he has to get in a boat and he preaches from a floating pulpit. We're told in Matthew 13, verse 1, that Jesus went out and sat by the lake. Such large crowds crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while other people stood on the shore. And then he told them many parables. And what's so amazing to me is this interaction between the masses and Christ very much mimics The contemporary church here. How so? As he was teaching and preaching in parables, the disciples asked him, they said, Why do you speak in parables? To which Jesus said, Listen closely. Though seeing they do not see, and though hearing they do not hear or understand. He said, In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Talks about the church today too. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, otherwise what? Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. The multitudes were sitting there and he was teaching in parables and they didn't get it. They didn't understand what he was saying. They didn't understand what he was trying to reveal with their eyes. They didn't get it. And and I know the disciples are saying, Lord, why are you teaching like this? Because they're not getting it. And Christ makes it clear why they didn't get it. They didn't want to get it. They didn't hear because they didn't want to hear and they didn't see because they didn't want to see why their hearts were calloused. They had no desire for a savior. Oh, they they wanted the healing, and they wanted the food, but they didn't want a king. They want to hear Jesus say, come, enter my rest. They don't want to hear him say, I never knew you, depart from me, worker of iniquity. They don't want to hear that, but they also don't want to submit to Christ. They want in, but not through the gospel of grace. They want to be identified as a son or daughter of God, but not submit to the king. In other words, this self-deception, as hard as this is to hear, it's self-induced. This unconscious state of moving through life by our works or by our knowledge or by our own will, we bring that upon ourselves and we want that. Because the hardest thing for the sinful heart to hear is, there is a God who is holy and you cannot know him or enter his presence without a savior and that's Christ. They want in, but not according to God's rules. They want in, but not any cost attached to it. They want in, but without surrendering daily and picking up their cross and following Christ. In other words, they're no different than the forefathers who died in the desert. They're in rebellion. Those who came before Christ, who will come before Christ on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things? Let us in. He will say, I never knew you. You're still in rebellion. You've always been in rebellion. You won't submit to me. I'm your king and you know better. And you know what? There's no indication they even want to change their mind. They say, we're going to stay like this all the way into hell for all eternity. We will not submit to you. And you say, how is this possible? I mean, how could this possibly happen? 
in our self-deception, we want to be God. In our self-deception, we want to be king. Otherwise, we would see with our eyes, hear with our ears, understand with our hearts, and we would turn and be healed. We would. Every last one of us. The many who are sitting in church this Sunday morning would hear, see, turn, and be healed. And there are many. If you think you're one of the many, then by God's grace, see this morning that you are a sinner that will stand before a holy God. See it clearly. See this morning that Jesus Christ is your only hope. See this morning that you have rebelled against him, but he's offered a way of hope through Christ. If you evaluate yourself and find yourself not knowing Christ, then hear Christ say to you, repent, believe, and follow me. Hear it. Maybe for the first time. Maybe for the first time for real, because you've heard it all your life. Hear him say, repent and believe and follow me. And enough goofing around. Enough playing church. Hear Christ. If you think that you might be one of the many who will hear Christ say, I never knew you, depart from me, then understand in your heart that Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross so that you'll have life. He did the unthinkable for you and for me and for all who will repent and believe. That he sacrificed his body, his blood, the perfect savior, the perfect unblemished lamb did the unthinkable. He says, know that in your heart. That he did that great work. Not just to release you from the sentence of sin and death, but to bring you in and make you a son or daughter and to lavish you with glory and honor and to pour out his love on you. In an amazing way, in ways that we can't begin to imagine. Yeah, I'm off my notes, I know. Tim Keller put it like this. First time I heard it, I loved it. He said, know in your heart that through the cross, God knows you to the bottom with all your sins and still loves you to the top in Christ. That if you know Christ, you are infinitely more wicked than you could ever imagine and simultaneously more radically and faithfully loved than you could ever dream. This is the most sober teaching. He says, see, hear, understand, and turn and be healed. Christ calls us to a healing of the sin that's raged in our life. He calls us to be healed from the lies and the self-deception and the idols that captivate us. He calls us to be healed from the distractions of ministry and community and doctrine. He calls us to himself. Because he knows that he's the only one that has the power and the desire to heal you. He's the only one. No one else. So he says, turn to me so that your calloused and hardened heart will be made into a heart of flesh that has the desires of God. A heart that seeks the goodness of others above self. And truly desires to do the will of God. He would say to to you, remember little ones, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. By God's radical grace. If you've identified yourself as one of the many. This morning. You will hear him. You will see him. You will understand in your heart the sacrifice that was made on the cross, you will turn and you will be healed. By his grace this morning, my prayer is for you that if that is your situation, that you'll see Christ. Let's pray.
Father, you said, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in your holy place? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. We know this to be true, Lord. We know that our heart is rebellious through and through. And so we ask you to heal us this morning. That we would hear this warning from Christ and evaluate these signs in our own lives. And if we indeed conclude that we do not know you, that we would come this very hour to know you. That we would cry out for mercy. That we would repent of the sins that we have committed and that will commit. And that we'll be healed by you. I pray for my, my church family. I fear there are some here who do not know you. I pray that you'd show yourself to them. Give us wisdom in this, in Christ's name. Amen.